0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast,
1: What We Can't Not Talk About. When it comes to, you know, the quote unquote feminists of the world today, I think that they actually lost sight of the things that they really should be fighting for.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About. I'm Dr. Mariana Orlandi, and I must confess that today I'm a little intimidated because my guest is a professional podcast host. Um, her name is Kate Bryant. Hello, Kate.
1: Don't be intimidated, Mariana. We are good friends. So. <laughs> yeah, we are. You
0: just said it. Yeah, I wanted to mention that probably there is only one reason I'm a little less intimidated, which is I knew you before this podcast recording, and yeah, I want to share something about that, but. Kate, I mentioned you're the host of a podcast. You're the host of an amazing podcast, I would say, One Girl Revolution. And I really wanted to talk to our audience about that a little bit today. But you're also the recent author of a just published book, just out of the press, Living the Feminist Dream, A Faithful Vision for Women in the Church and the
1: Word. So first of all, how does it feel to be an author, Kate? It feels... Great. It's a big accomplishment. Anybody who's ever even written a paper for college, I feel like that oftentimes can feel like a big accomplishment. And for me, this was kind of a series of papers and things that I was thinking about and things I experienced and putting them together in a book. So it was a long journey. It feels it's crazy to still sit here and like hold a copy of the book with my name on it. But it's been great. It was a huge honor to write that with New City Press. And it's an honor to be on your show to talk about it and to talk about One Girl Revolution. How does it feel also that to to be on the other side of the interview? Uh, It's
0: exciting. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So yeah, as (laughs) usually (laughs) Go, go, go,
1: please. I was going to say, usually I'm the one that has to be like, okay, game time. Like these are all the questions that I'm going to ask and figuring out how I'm going to ask questions. And it just feels, it feels great. I mean, again, like we're friends, so it feels nice just to be in the same space as you, even though it's on a Zoom. Just, I feel like we're just catching up over coffee, which is great.
0: Yeah. And since our audience is largely composed of personal friends of the Institute and, you know, parents of students that have come to the Institute or that are already uh, still here, our students, the people that know us in Austin, in full disclosure for our audience, I would like to say that, yes, I had the pleasure of knowing you and of being your friend when I was in D.C. I even remember a karaoke night in D.C. with you and something like in 2016. And also One thing that came to mind, we actually even lived in the same house. Yes. uh, This house that got passed among girls with certain principles and certain ideas and would just, you know, been passed through generations. I don't know if it's still the case, but I guess it is.
1: I think it's still the case. Yeah. None of, I don't think any of the people that were there when we were there are still in the house, but they've just passed it on. And it's Crazy to look back on because it was six women living in the same space. It was a very big house, but it was a really blessed time, I think, to live in in that community and to have sisters and support one another throughout all the things that we were going through throughout our lives. But it's also nice to not be in
0: a house with six women. <laughs> That's very true. There's a community house and community that doesn't help at times. But maybe, you know, if there are young girls that are considering moving to D.C. now they know that they can shoot us an email for one more reason if they need some, you know, advice on where to find the spot. You know, however, are in Detroit, which is where you were born, correct? Yes. And for our audience to understand what brought you to D.C., what brought you back to Detroit, would you mind introducing yourself in terms of like your background, your education, and, and what first brought you you know, to D.C.?
1: Sure. So I am born and raised in Michigan. I lived here, I guess, guess, the majority of my life. I have lived in Michigan. Now I'm like thinking about it, but I went to Ave Maria College in Michigan before it moved down to Florida. Many people would be familiar with Ave Maria University in Florida. And when they moved down, I decided to transfer to Franciscan University of Steubenville, And I was kind of the typical, typical college student at 18, 19 years old, I had no idea what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be when I grew up. And so I decided that I was just going to get a liberal arts degree and focus on theology. So I got a degree in liberal arts and theology and then moved back to Michigan, worked for AT&T, just got a job to pay off my student loans. And then I decided, that was 2008, 2009, I decided that I wanted to go back to school. So I applied. I had a lot of ties to Ireland. So my family's Irish American, wanted my whole life to go to Ireland. And I had been, I think at that point, I had been once or twice, but I applied to a master's program in Dublin, Ireland, and the master's was in public affairs and political communication. So I ended up in 2009 moving to Ireland and studying and then working in politics, working in the Senate there, and then working in PR and media in Ireland. And then after about two and a half years of living and working there and finishing my degree, I kind of got to the point, I was at a crossroads where I was building so much of my personal and professional life over there. And so I decided after a lot of thought and discernment that I wanted to move back to the States because I was either going to stay there and build my life in Ireland, or it was time for me to move back and really start building my life in the U.S. again. So I moved back, but I didn't, I wasn't ready to come back to Michigan yet. And I still had this kind of fire for politics and political discourse and then PR and media. So I moved to DC. I was like, that's what you're supposed to do if you want to get into politics. And so I lived there for six years. You know, I joke that I did Mm -hmm. my time, quote unquote, in DC. And then after six years of living there, I just kind of got burnt out by the political machine. And I started seeing how often people were treated Mm -hmm. as political pawns and specifically women, how often Uh, women are divided and treated as political pawns and um, politicized through so many different things and issues. And so I decided to move back to Michigan. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do when I move back and still was doing some PR contract work. And then it was when I moved back to Detroit, I was reading this book about the city of Detroit. And, you know, people have a lot of different ideas and thoughts about the city of Detroit. I've always loved this city. And I think it's a city that has so much beauty and the people here are so beautiful, but then there's also a lot of grit. So a lot of people that have been through really difficult times, but also they find so much joy and they're really the world changers in a lot of ways. And there's so many great things going on here in Detroit. So I was reading this book about the city of Detroit, and there are two phrases in Latin on Detroit's flag, and they were written by Father Gabriel Richard. And the two phrases are, there is always hope and it will rise from the ashes. And the moment that I read that, Mariana, I knew that I was supposed to do something for women. And so I was like, women are so resilient. They're so powerful. They're changing the world. They you know, have risen from the ashes. And they always are like the beacons of hope for all of us in the world. And so that's when I really clarified what one girl revolution was. I always knew that I wanted to do something with women, but didn't know exactly what I was supposed to do. Yeah, and I want to
0: hear more about what Gern actually does and some of these stories. But before we get there, I would say that I, from what I know of you, before this move to Detroit, there were two things that probably speak of your gifts and talents and passions. The one thing would be, I recall you delivering a talk at CPAC in 2016. So, yeah, you were pretty well-known in D.C. You were not leaving because you didn't make it or you couldn't make it. So I would like to maybe hear more about mm-hmm. that. And on the other hand, the other thing that was circulating around about you was this very clear message about chastity that you were giving as a woman involved in politics. So would you tell us about these two experiences before we move to one girl
1: Yeah, sure. Um, Throughout my time in DC, I kind of was always straddling two different lines. And I think that's a lot of us, right? Like we're multifaceted beings. And so you might have a nine to five job or you might have a full time job, whatever that means for you. And for me, it was working in PR and media. It never stops. So I was working around the clock for all of my clients and worked for a PR firm in DC. And it was amazing. And I loved my job and I loved all my coworkers there. But I simultaneously had my own individual things that I wanted to talk about and say. And so CPAC came about because they were looking for someone to speak on immigration. And that can obviously be a very divisive issue, especially being in D.C. And there are a lot of people that I would say consider themselves on either side of the issue, you know, either for it or against it. And for me, it was always just a human issue. It was a human rights issue. It was a human... Um, to like a should be a conversation about the humanity, the dignity of the person, and so I had talked very often about that to friends, and then CPAC. I knew a couple people that worked at CPAC, and so would have these conversations with them. And it was out of nowhere, Mariana, that I remember getting the call. It was like in February, and people dream about speaking on CPAC's main stage. You know, there are organizations that their entire careers are like working to find a way on the CPAC stage. And I always was just like, never thought that I would get there. So I just never even, I just did, was authentically myself. Anyways, they called and they said, Hey, we have, you know, one person already speaking and we want to do kind of have two different perspectives. They don't necessarily have to be on one side of the issue and then on the other. And we just think what you have to offer is really unique. So would you be open to speaking? And I remember almost like falling over, like being on my cell phone and almost falling over. Cause I was like, almost like a panic attack. I don't know what that feels like, but that's probably what it felt like. And I was like, um, okay, uh, let me think about it and let me call you back. And so I figured it out. And one of our mutual friends, Alfonso Aguilar is amazing, former chief of us citizenship. And he, was amazing and helped me like write it. And I was like calling him and trying to figure out what do I say? And how do I say it? And how do I kind of really encapsulate my view of it back to this dignity of the human person? And um, I don't think that there are just two sides of the issue, but that issue in particular is broken. Our immigration system is broken. So how do you kind of find a way to bridge, build a bridge there between differing viewpoints? So that was CPAC. And then my article in the Washington Post, so I had read one summer, it was 2016. Actually, what's interesting is both of those things, now that I'm thinking about it, both of those and things yeah, if happened I may, in 2016. Uh, sorry,
0: Kate, but if I may interrupt, that's exactly when I was there. So I was watching this and I, you know, just yes. in case someone forgets <laughs> from my accent, I am an immigrant. So I really remember how those words touched my heart because you went to the core of what being an American means. Mm. So just saying, Mm -hmm. and I hope that there is a link online where people that we can maybe add to this podcast so that people can even see how brilliant you were on that stage. But yeah, let's
1: get to that. Yeah. Thank you. I remember it. I remember you taking pictures and yeah, I remember us like celebrating after, and I don't think I've ever been more terrified, Mariana. Like I remember almost like like taking a breath before I walked out on stage. And I was like, I hope that I don't trip or collapse or faint or all that, like, do anything embarrassing to embarrass my family. Cause it's also televised too. So I had all these people that were watching. Yeah. And then, okay. And then you went very Everything public with the article, so. which was even more, I mean. Yeah. So I just so many things about my life, like, I've just always strived to be authentically myself. And I have, You know, people read my book and read a lot about like my personal upbringing and things that I had overcome, like as a young person, as a young person just in my own personal life, I guess. And then um, also throughout my faith journey. So, different times that I had been attacked for what I believed or challenged for what I believed. And so, I think those experiences really made me so steadfast and confident in who I am and what I believe. And it's always, my faith has always just been a normal part of who I am. It's not like, you know, I don't try to cram it down anybody's throat, but I am very like, I know what I believe and I know why I believe it. And so that summer in 2016, I was doing my usual PR thing, reading all these different headlines and articles. And I stumbled upon two different articles in the Washington Post that talked about chastity and abstinence. And they were both written by women and pretty much said, you know, chastity is archaic. Nobody does it anymore. And one of the women had chosen to live her life that way and then got married, had kids. You could tell she was so tired and frustrated and her life wasn't what she thought it would be, you know, now getting married and having a family. And she ended up blaming chastity on that, you know, like, well, if I hadn't lived my life this way, maybe I would be happy. And I think that's a human thing. It's this whole shoulda, woulda, coulda. We all can have those moments in our lives. But I remember reading those two pieces and I was like, well, that's not my experience. Like, I haven't come out. I've never sought to be a chastity speaker. I never sought to write an article. I never sought to you know, come out publicly, but that wasn't my experience. And so I switched into PR mode and I started asking around, hey, does anybody want to write this article? I think that there needs to be a response or needs to be a different article, a perspective from an authentic Catholic perspective, because I have always been a believer that the Catholic teaching on chastity, which the church believes, which I believe that chastity is a perfection of love. So it's not too much, it's not too little. You're constantly like, that's why chastity even continues in marriage. Like you're striving to love the other person in the most perfect way. And so for me, it was easy to abstain because that is my understanding of chastity. And so anyways, nobody wanted to write the article, shockingly. And so I just kind of was like, well, I guess I'll write it. And never thinking that the Washington Post would run it. And then two days later, I just sent it to one of the editors and was like, hey, I read these two pieces. I don't feel like that aligns with what I know to be true and what I believe. And so I wrote this piece, you know, if you're interested in running it, And they ended up deciding to run it with a picture of me. And the headline read, I'm a 32-year-old virgin living the feminist dream. And, And I chose the headline. They asked me what I wanted the headline to be. And I was like, well, that's ultimately what it is. And the article went viral. As you can imagine, people loved it. They hated it you know i got all kinds of sadly i got all kinds of vile remarks from men for the most part women were really supportive even if they disagreed with me or even if they hadn't lived their life in that way they respected it which i thought was really beautiful and then i got so many letters and i still do to this day just got one the other day i still randomly have people that stumble upon the article or now with the book they've kind of read more about that whole story and i get letters from and i get letters from guys too that say oh thank you so much for for sharing, that's how I'm living my life. And so I think it's given a lot of people courage to speak out and say like, hey, there are different sides to this story. But yeah, Yeah, in in an era dominated
0: by fear, which for those of us who believe in the spiritual part of the word, you know, it doesn't come from anywhere good to be afraid. Uh, I think that an example of courage and just, uh, you know, saying what you mean and being also open to be convinced, otherwise, in case you're wrong, you know, some Mm -hmm. of the responses can be also very, on point and just trying to, you know, to convince you that maybe you're doing something wrong, but like speaking one's mind, it's something that today doesn't happen and there's need for that because we are living in this time of fear and of self-censorship mm-hmm. that just doesn't help anyone grow and mature and and learn especially learn because we need to question things in order to learn them. We need to to speak them. But so, yeah, after these two things, you keep working, then you move back to Detroit and you start. Now you are the founder and the CEO of this one girl revolution, which is a multimedia platform and podcast that runs. You you basically highlight the stories. Like, am I highlighting your story today? But usually you highlight the stories of everyday women. So maybe not exactly like you, but who are changing the word and they're changing their work with their lives. So what, Kind of stories are the ones that you select? What kind of women?
1: Yeah. So I have interviewed so many different women, all different ages. I focus on women and girls because, like I said before, I think so often, and I see this in the media, women's voices, their authentic stories aren't being told. And on the one hand, I understand it, right? Like the media has, we have 30 seconds to tell a story, then we got to go to commercial break. So some of it we get, like they have to edit it, edit it to make it interesting or whatever. But what ends up happening is a lot of times the story that is told is not maybe the full story, or maybe it's not the most authentic part of the story, or, you know, the most authentic representation of what's going on. And so I really wanted to focus on women and girls specifically for that reason, so that this could be a space that was created where women and girls could share their authentic stories, tell their stories in the way that they want. My job, just like yours, is to help lead the conversation and like lead it to different things that I think are most interesting or that I think might be most inspiring for people. But it really sparked out of me, I would see stories on Facebook that really inspired me or a friend would send me a news article or I'd see something on TV. These stories are all around us. And... I focus on American women because I feel like a lot of times in America, we hear about internationally things that are going on, but we don't often hear about our own neighbors. And I want One Girl to continue to grow because I want to cover some of the international stories. But for now, I've mostly focused on American women. And so I've interviewed everyone from a five-year-old little girl that makes coloring books for children in hospitals up to stay-at-home mom who's dedicated her life to helping those experiencing homelessness, walking around, you know, putting her kids to bed and driving around the streets and giving blankets and food out to on um, those who are experiencing homelessness. All the way up to the retired grandmother who's dedicated her life to helping new mothers take care of their babies and learn how to breastfeed or whatever the thing is that they need help and support in, and really building community. Around these women. And so it's all different types of stories, all different backgrounds, all different races, religion. It's just, it's really incredible. And so what we've created is we have 138 episodes of the podcast. We have a short documentary. Uh, we have a second documentary that's coming out soon, totally different story. And so I'm excited to see where it goes from here. But it started as this little heart project. I thought at the beginning, I was like, you know, even if I can cover do 10 episodes, right? If I can cover 10 stories, that's 10 stories that maybe the world hadn't heard yet. And so now it's grown to hundreds of stories. And I can't wait to see where it and goes And I, I watched your
0: documentary, which is about this women in prison, learning and trying to, you know, overcome their time in prison. Do you usually focus on stories of success, like after struggles? Or is that a general theme that connects the stories? Women that I've had, you know, something to struggle with or...
1: That's a great question. I would say a lot of the stories are are success stories, you know, women that have come through a trauma or survivors of human trafficking that now are helping other women. But just as equally, I'm also interested in the stories that are still being written. and I really think that all of our stories are still being written. and so it might not seem to the outside world it might not seem like a success story. And the girl inside is a great example. You know, I took a film crew in to highlight this professor that taught storytelling to incarcerated women at county jail, the largest jail in the world, and also to include the women, like the women that she was teaching. Because to me, they're also success stories. You know, they are on this journey through life. They have a purpose, they have valued. So it's really like any story that really highlights the value and purpose of women focus on dignity, right? Like all these words that I've mentioned about, you know, when I'm thinking about my work in DC or my speech at CPAC, like it all to me comes back to human dignity. So these women, I'm just always looking for ways and ways to open people's eyes. And so the girl inside was such a powerful piece because we see a lot of things in movies, you know, about jail or prison. And, you know, you think that somebody is really bad and then they did something bad and they deserve to be there. And I never, you know, I hope they they rot in jail. You hear these kind of things that people say. And I look at these women in the documentary and I look at people that are incarcerated and we don't know their story necessarily, right? Like we don't know how they were brought up. We don't know the struggles that they went through, but their life still matters just as much as ours do. And so, yeah, I love the struggle stories just as much as I love the success stories. And to me, those women are on a journey. A couple of the women from the documentary have gotten out which is amazing. And they're getting their lives back on track. And so they're like, it's a continuation of their story. But even in that moment, when they were locked up in county jail, they're a story that deserves to be told. Their voices matter just as much as any of ours. And so I think it's a little bit of a both and, but a lot of the stories are success stories.
0: Yeah. Thinking about the comment about the, you know, the people in jail and I worked as a criminal lawyer in the past and that's my background. And if there's one thing you learn, in defending clients and is an attitude that you have when you're defending people is that there is no, there's nothing that people do or commit that you would not have done or might not have done where you born in their own family, in their same family and being under the same circumstances. So there is the sense when you say, you know, Oh, I hope they rot in jail. You don't really do because you would not want to be on the other side. And and there are things that are part of our experience, which I hope, you can tell us if you agree that there is something in common that, for instance, many of the times we know that the stories of the biggest struggle in life for women, but for men equally are when the family behind is not a strong family. you know, And when there are issues there, then it's easier than these issues continue in our adult lives. Have you found, you know, in the stories where, you know, for instance, in the struggles, have you found that there was maybe a wrong narrative in their life where women... You know, me when we struggle where they, did they have the wrong dream? Because that's something that strikes me about your title, right? So you say living the feminist dream. So I would like to tell you for you to tell us what you mean about feminism, but also what do we mean about dream? or are, are we dreaming the right thing?
1: Mm. I, like for me, living the feminist dream means that you're authentically living the life that you were created to live. And so that can look a lot of different ways. Um, there are a lot of facets to that. And I think back to the Cook County Jail, I remember sitting in a circle. So if you watch the documentary, it's only 10 minutes on YouTube. I hope everybody watches it. But I remember sitting in this room and it was this crazy experience actually getting a film crew into Cook County Jail Then I show up and it's, and I want to give pens out to the women, you know, I want to give up pens because I wanted to see, have on film them writing. And I also wanted them, it's an academic course. So I wanted them to have a piece of paper, something that they could take with them to remember this day. And I just remember the jail being like, girl, you're crazy. Like you're giving these people pens, but if you want to do it, like go ahead and, and they were worried about safety and different things. But, um, but anyways, we did it. And I remember sitting in this circle and just thinking about how similar I was, how much the same I was to each of these women. And the reality is we're all one step away from Cook County, right? Like we're all one step away from something bad happening. And we can probably reflect on our entire lives and say, you know... Maybe your family situation wasn't the best, or maybe where you were raised, your community wasn't the best, or maybe you just had a friend that wasn't a really good influence, that was a bad influence on you, actually. And you see these moments, these pinpoints throughout your life where you're like, I was at a crossroads and I could have chosen to do good or I could have chosen to do bad. And I firmly believe in free will and people are able to make choices. And sometimes we make the wrong choices. I know I have, but we have the power to change our lives at any point too. like as much, even if you're going down the wrong path. And that's what I love about these stories of incarceration. And especially with women, women are fascinating. We're fascinating beings, but just as an example, look at the incarceration rate. Women are the fastest growing population within jail and prison. No one's talking about that. And what's even more interesting is the majority of women and anybody who's an expert in this field would tell you the majority of women that are in jail or prison, there is some other factor that has led them. And it's not to justify what they did. It's not to say that they are in the total clear, but there's some other factor that's happening. Such as? Men, on the other hand, it's like they're just in a bad mood and they rob a bank, right? (laughs) Um, That's a totally random example. We hope we don't find them. Yeah. Yeah. Right? (laughs) Um, But women, they're trying to feed their kids. They have a pimp or a boyfriend or a husband or somebody who is getting them into human trafficking or getting them into crime or... There's always some factor. They're either trying to take care of themselves or trying to pay rent. They're trying to take care of their kids. They're struggling. They have a sick family member that they're trying... There's some other motivating factor that leads them to end up in jail or prison. And that's not being talked about. And so I've actually done, I did a whole 10 part series on the podcast after the girl inside came out. Cause so I was like, Oh, this is interesting. Oh, no, no, I want to keep no. pulling at the thread and learning more about this. And so I interviewed numerous experts, people that were formerly incarcerated, um, professors, women that work with incarcerated women or formerly incarcerated women, all these different perspectives. And it's 10 different episodes And every single one will tell you that there's some other motivating factor when it comes to women. And so all the more reason we need to be working on building community amongst women, supporting women, supporting our sisters, you know, encouraging the women in our lives. And I think back to your question about the feminist dream, I think that we need to, no matter who you are, and it's not just women, it's also, you know, men who are listening, everybody who's listening we need to do a better job of supporting our sisters, supporting women around us that have hopes and dreams and encouraging them, even if their dream might seem crazy. If I had, you know, there were a lot of people actually that thought I was crazy leaving DC. Like you mentioned, like I had this great career. I was doing really well. I was thriving there and I just gave it all up and moved back to Michigan to be closer to my family and to pursue this dream of One Girl Revolution. And there were a lot of people at the beginning that thought I was crazy. And now they've started to see... The vision that I had, you know, going into Cook County Jail, there were people that thought I was crazy and then we got Mm -hmm. nominated for an Emmy Award. And so I think that we need to do a better job of supporting women that have hopes and dreams and encouraging them. And
0: would you agree that we should also encourage women to have feminist dreams in the sense of like not dreaming like a man? Because there is something yeah. that you said about what feminism means to you. It means to me authentically, you and to authentically a woman. So I would ask you, do you think we live in a feminist world, as most would say? And if you agree, okay. If you don't agree, what is feminism? To, wh- where does today's feminism diverge from what you think feminism is and should be?
1: Yeah, I was reading. I was reading about this book the other day. I haven't read it, so I can't necessarily promote it. But it's. Um, I think it's like called the Invisible Women or something like that. And it was talking about how our world, so much of our world was created, it was created by men, and so many of the things that are in place are created by men. And now you have so many women that are rising up to be CEOs of Fortune 500 companies that are you know, having positions of leadership on boards and other things. And so things are really changing. And those women are advocating for other people. And it's a complicated topic. We could do a whole probably podcast series on it. When it comes to, you know, the quote unquote feminists of the world today, I think that they actually lost sight of the things that they really should be fighting for. And they end up fighting for things that it's like, well, you actually should be just fighting for Women to be respected. I think the first thing that comes to mind is the whole Me Too movement and all the abuses against women. I'm from Michigan, and the whole Larry Nassar case with the Olympics. Right now, the Olympics are going on, and how many women have been have survived sexual abuse or other traumas just because they were trying to pursue their dreams. And so, there are so many abuses that are rampant, and I don't see the quote unquote secular feminists fighting for those women and fighting for those stories to be told. And so. I think that they really lost sight of the real issues at hand and got distracted by, you know, what they think are like feminist ideals and actually like women aren't respected in the way that they should be in this day and age.
0: Since we are at the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture, there's one question that to me is interesting. So we're more or less the same age and we're not married yet. As many professionals, as many successful women that have uh, dedicated a lot of years to their education and focused on work. and, And at the Austin Institute, we promote research on the family and on marriage. And some scholars came up with some of the reasons why it could be the case that, you know, there is this high number of professionals in almost 40s, single, they believe in marriage, they want to get married, but it doesn't happen. So some blame it on the market imbalances or... I would like to know if you agree that, yeah, that is part of the story, but that there is maybe a very big part of it is that we do not trust each other, that men do not trust women and women do not trust men enough to commit.
1: Mm, That's really interesting. Yeah. And in the culture, you see that play out. That's really interesting because I think, yeah, I think both things could be true, right? Like the market and like the people, Every. Single person has probably been on a lot of dating apps and have really tried to put themselves out there. I think there are a lot of facets to that discussion that you could break apart. But yeah, people don't trust. We're built, this is a culture of people don't trust one another. You know, they don't trust their neighbors anymore. We used to live in a society where people could leave their. I remember being a little kid and our family like leaving our doors unlocked at night. And now it's like you would not, even in the safest neighborhoods, you would not leave your doors unlocked because you just don't know. And we don't trust people. There are reasons not to trust people. Right. But I think that's also true. Yeah. In our relationships, like, is this person actually somebody that I want to commit myself to for the rest of my life and have a family with? And like, what if they're hiding something? Um, even though we live in the day and age where you can find out anything about anyone just by Googling it. So it's weird that we don't trust people. But I think that you're right. And so we need to trust people in the little things and find ways to. We need the family for our society to continue on. You guys know that better than anyone through your research and through the work that you're doing. But, you know, we need to engage people and encourage good, strong marriages and families, because that's how the society is going to go forward. Because if I may, there is something, you know, that you said
0: about the feminist dreams. And I'm wondering how many of these girls or women are married and are, you know, in stable marriages and have been helped. Because you mentioned how we need men to support the feminist dreams. And what came to mind to me is that absolutely, but we also need to help men pursuing their dreams. And I was wondering if, you know, if some of your friends or the closest friends are thinking about the one man revolution, because I do see, and I hear from men who are actually not very sure of what they could do, should do to become the real man of tomorrow. The man that as a a real feminist, someone that really believes in there being, um, being a woman, what do you need from me? Right? So the man who doesn't know Am I supposed to provide or not? Am I supposed to be the half of the family or not? Am I supposed to be taking? And if so, how and when? And how do I gain your trust? How do I support you? So do you think that there is a need for the one man
1: revolution or? Yeah, I think so. And actually when I first started One Girl Revolution, I had people that were like, when are you starting the one man revolution? And I was like, well, I am one person. I literally am the one girl revolution a lot of the time doing the podcast and doing our social media and all the different things that have to be done. But I think there is a need. I agree with you. There is a need for men to be empowered. And I know that there are some kind of brotherhood social media pages and organizations that are kind of starting to pop up. And I hope that we see more of them. I hope that we have more spaces like that because our culture, we really have become a culture of insecurity And I think with social media, social media is one of the greatest connecting tools, right? Like there are stories that I come across for One Girl Revolution that I never would have even known about or been able to connect with the person without social media. So I'm so grateful. And it's such a great way for us to stay in touch. I mean, even you and I, like being able to like follow each other's journeys Mm -hmm. and like where we are and what we're doing, things we're doing, it can be such a great connector tool. So I'm not completely attacking social media, but on the flip side, it's turned us all into these insecure beings, you know, where it's like, you see people hanging out without you. And you're like, you become this little kid again. Like, Oh, they're hanging out without me. Like, why didn't I get invited to that party or why didn't so-and-so tag me in that thing? Because I, you know, I, they should tag me and I find myself doing it. And I know that men deal with that too, this insecurity. Like I'm not worthy. And Maybe that's part of it too with men. Like I'm not worthy of this woman who's doing all these amazing things. And I think about that, especially with a lot of our friends or a lot of our single girlfriends. You should ask a guy about this question at some point because I'd be curious what guys would say. But I see a lot of women that are doing incredible things. They want to get married. They want to have a family and they're open to it and they're ready for it they've saved up money you know they've set themselves up well to be able to leave their careers or do their careers part time or continue full time during their careers and they've really established themselves but it's almost like men are don't feel worthy of these women because it's like oh well yeah yeah, I, I don't want
0: to be controversial and, and end, you know, this podcast, but I would lend it with an open question also for our audience that, you know, they can email us and say what they think if they disagree. But I also think that, yes, there is a part of a man feeling that is not worthy of it, but that maybe another reason is, well, do you really need me? Mm. Right. Because the man could ask, well, if you're so well prepared for your career, you're so well prepared for whatever happens, you have lived in Ireland, you know, or you have lived like you are capable of doing all these things. Do you actually really need me? So maybe both men and women do have a need to be needed by the other, which also means that we need to be vulnerable somewhere somehow. But I don't know, this is probably a starter for a longer conversation when I hope you will be visiting us in Austin. And so we can maybe continue, maybe record another podcast or do you think that the, the book you wrote, which I strongly recommend, i going to link it in our podcast. Do you think that this is there something that could help men understand more about women, young men, or would you say it's more dedicated to a,
1: a female audience? For sure. I wrote it really with the female audience in mind because I wanted to talk about things going on in the culture, but also in the church. And I don't mean necessarily just the Catholic church, but you know, all different communities of faith. And there need to be, in my mind, there need to be discussions about there are so many different ways that women are living the feminist dream, so many ways that they're living their lives and. I think a lot of times we have these kind of cookie cutter ideas of what women are supposed to be. And sometimes we fit into those cookie cutters and sometimes we don't. And so I really wanted to engage conversation about where do women fit in the culture, challenge some things in the culture. And then on the flip side with the church community, where are things that we can be better? Where are things that we um, do things well? And so really kind of engaging conversations. And so I would say it's really for anyone could look at it. And I think it might open a lot of men's eyes up to their sisters to women in their lives and their friends or girlfriends even in college i know when i was in college some of my best friends were all guys you know i was a really good friends with one of the communities at franciscan and, and just stayed in close touch with them and so just for, for men to understand kind of some of the things that women are fighting against and working through in their own lives and in the culture. And just to point back to the last thing that we were talking about, I would love to hear different people's perspectives. And so I hope that everybody who's listening will write in their perspectives because I'm not saying that I know everything and I know you're not either. I don't claim to be an expert on everything, but what I share are things that I see in my own, um, through my own life and things I've experienced in my own life. and. I'm just so curious. I think there's a lot to be talked about with regards to insecurity and authenticity and vulnerability you mentioned. I think we have to be vulnerable in order to really find, find our purpose and find the life that we were created for.
0: Yeah. And we really need to believe in, you know, in the goodness of the other to be vulnerable. And maybe that's not something that society is helping understand because we're constantly defending ourselves from another, from an Mm -hmm. attack, and again, living this spirit of fear. So so what I really appreciate about you, Kate, and this is also something we try to do here, we love dialogue and we love disagreement, and we can't wait to disagree on things so that we can just, you know, not be afraid again of speaking our minds. And you were not afraid when you wrote your article, and we will link to that too because many Many girls that listen to us might want to be, you know, reinforced in their decision to live a chaste life, which is not exactly common on campuses today. But you have spoken your mind. You're doing it. You're doing it through the stories of other women. You are a one-girl revolution. I'm very grateful that you were our guest today. Again, I recommend following you following as and following you and buying your book. And I look forward to having you here in person soon.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And you are a one girl revolution. And I'm just so grateful for this time. And I can't wait to come down to Austin.
0: Yes. So looking forward to it. Okay. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast. What we can't not talk about. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five star rating and please donate so we can do even more.